get the burger. It's juicy. It's like, I don't care. What does a burger mean? From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Today on Schmaltzy, writer Joshua David Stein. Joshua is an author and journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Esquire, and Food and Wine. He is the U.S. editor of Where Chefs Eat, and his newest book, Cooking for Your Kids, comes out next month. We'll hear Joshua's original live story, and then he'll meet me in the studio for a chat. Here's Joshua from the stage at our most recent Schmaltzy Salon in Brooklyn. It's the spring of 2014, and I'm working as the restaurant critic for the New York Observer. This is before they endorsed Donald Trump and I had to quit in protest. And my grandfather, Papa Frank, is dying, and so I'm going to say goodbye to him. Some things you should know about Papa Frank is he was a physicist who met my grandmother uh, working on the Manhattan Project in Manhattan. But his most salient characteristic was that he was a stickler. So I remember he would fight with people about how to pronounce maraschino, like maraschino cherries, which it's a hard C, but people say maraschino, which is incorrect. He would note that. He volunteered to write definitions of semiconductors for an association of engineers. Work brought him to Kokomo, Indiana, which I always used to think was what the Beach Boys were singing about, where they would get there fast and take it slow. (laughs) But it turns out that's not what it is. It's a small, dying automotive town an hour north of Indianapolis, Indiana. It's probably best known for being the home of Old Ben, who was the world's largest steer who died in the 20s, 5,000 pounds. He's taxidermied and stuffed and displayed in a park in downtown Kokomo. And it'll tell you something about my grandfather and Kokomo, that there's a sign describing Old Ben, and there was an errant comma, and my grandfather corrected it. It should have been a semicolon, and uh, complained to the town board, and now there's a semicolon. So we went from being a small Jew in a big town to being a big Jew in a small town. He was a president of Temple B'nai Israel, which means that when there was a visiting rabbi up from Cincinnati, Ohio every week, he would accommodate this rabbi. Um, And then as a congregation dwindled and diminished, it wasn't every week, it was every month, and then every other month. So that's where I'm going. And I get in late on a Friday night, and I go straight to the house that he shared with my grandmother, who had passed away a few years before. During a turbulent childhood, this was where... I, I, I was most happy, this oasis of blue shag carpeting and my grandfather's polar bear figurines. He had thousands of them and a treehouse in the back and a creek behind the treehouse. And I remember going there for all sorts of holidays, Hanukkah. My whole family would go there. And I remember my grandma, Grandma Ellie, 
telling me that the reason why the latkes tasted so good is because she grated her knuckles on the box grater. And I haven't eaten latkes since then. But this time around, it was different, obviously. It was, my grandma had died, my grandfather was dying, and this was probably the last time I would ever go to Kokomo. Quite a lonely time, and, and a time to reflect on my relationship with my grandfather, which, as wonderful as it was, it wasn't an easy relationship. For instance, we would go for walks in forests, but it was never just being in the forest. It was like, Joshua, Josh. He called me Josh, but I prefer Joshua as an adult. He said, Josh, is this a sycamore or a birch tree? Is this a maple or a, a beech? Of course, I know the difference between a maple and a beech, but you know, everything was, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. We'd be listening to music, and it wasn't just enjoy the music. It was like, is this Rachmaninoff? Is this Beethoven? Is this Shostakovich? It's always a right answer and a wrong answer. And unfortunately, I usually got the wrong answer. So my plan was to go visit my grandfather in the morning in the hospital, first thing in the morning. But of course, I needed to get coffee. So I call my aunt, who's already at the hospital with my sister, and I say, what do you guys want? And my aunt says, a non-fat caramel latte. And my sister wants a double cappuccino with more milk and foam. My aunt's from LA. <laughs> my sister's from Palo Alto. I'm from New York, so naturally, I want a double macchiato. I had one this morning, it's very good, thank you. <laughs> the thing about Kokomo, Indiana, is it's not like the center of third wave coffee shops. They have like Starbucks, and then they have these like drive-in coffee bars. So I found a drive-in coffee bar on the way to the hospital. It's called Coffee Junkies, J-U-N-K-I-E-Z, which is uh, owned by the same people who own Pizza Junkies. So, I drive up to Coffee Junkies and I place the order, a non-fat caramel latte and double cappuccino, more milk than more foam, and a double macchiato. And I pull up. As I'm waiting for the coffee, which takes a while, my aunt calls and she says, you should get to the hospital. Your, <clears throat> your grandfather's dying, like actively dying. So the hospital's not far. So then this... This woman opens the, the door for the, the little window for the coffee. And, you know, she's like a high school kid, Kokomo High, you know, sweatshirt. And she gives me three 24-ounce cups. Now, for two-thirds of the drinks, 24 ounces is appropriate. A non-fat caramel latte and a double cappuccino, more milk than, more, than foam. But for a macchiato, a macchiato is espresso marked. Macchiato means marked with a little bit of foamed milk. If you go to a coffee shop, it's in a three-ounce demitasse. There's no way it should be in a 24-ounce cup. And I look at this beverage. She gives me the tray, and I'm looking at it. And I'm about to drive away. And I can see that it's like unidentified coffee beverage, milk, whipped cream, and then like a lattice work of caramel syrup on top. I'm about to go. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking, okay, on one hand, my grandfather's dying. And on the other hand, if he's told me anything, it's that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. That a unit of measurement in one place is a unit of measurement in another. That some things are sycamores and some things are Shostakovich and some things are macchiatos. Macchiati is a proper plural. 
And then whatever the fuck this is, it's not a macchiato. So I reverse back to the window. And in the most gentle, non-coastal elite way I can manage, try to explain, well, you know, technically, you know, a macchiato is a, little, is a shot of espresso, a double shot, with a little bit of foam milk. And the lady makes it, you know, to her credit. And it's like a fine macchiato. It's not the best I've had, but it's definitely a macchiato. And I make my way to the hospital. Of course, it's an espresso drink, and I drank it in 30 seconds. By the time I get to the hospital parking lot, <clears throat> I park, I take this tray of beverages out, put it on the hood of the car. Uh, my aunt calls, and she says, sweetheart, I'm so sorry your grandfather just died. And I wish this wasn't my first thought, but my first thought was, well, what do I do with this coffee? Because to bring a cup of black coffee into the room of someone who just died seems appropriate. To bring like a non-fat caramel latte and a double cappuccino with more milk than foam seems obscene. <laughs> On the other hand, my grandfather and my grandmother both were products of the Depression, and I think they would have been so angry if I wasted the coffee, so I brought it in. When I get to the hospital room, what I remember is putting the coffee down. I remember seeing my sister and my aunt and my grandfather's body. You know, because he had just passed away like minutes before. But I don't remember saying goodbye to my grandfather. I don't remember hugging my aunt or my sister. What I did do is I got my laptop open and um, opened Excel and started making a spreadsheet of who to invite to the funeral, which is crazy because I didn't know any of his friends and most of them were dead anyway. So in this moment, I was just fiddling with the formatting of spreadsheets. Now, for years, I told myself this story as it was my insistence on a proper macchiato which robbed me of the chance to be present for my grandfather's passing. And the way I made myself feel better was thinking, well, I come from a long line of sticklers. He's a stickler. I'm a stickler. He would have done the same thing in reverse and gotten the proper macchiato. But since then, since I've become a father of two boys, and since I've had my heart broken, and broken open in a way, I realized that there's two legacies that he passed on. One is being a stickler. And the other is using this idea of right and wrong to emotionally eject from situations. Not to listen to music, not to be in the forest, not to experience sadness or joy or heartbreak. And now that I have two sons of my own, I want to pass on the legacy of, yes, some things are right and some things are wrong, but also for them to show up for themselves so they can show up for others, so they can feel all that life has to offer, so they can hear the music and not just name it, see the trees and not just name them, and feel themselves. So when I die, 
I'm surrounded by fully present loved ones, each holding a perfectly made macchiato. Thank you. And can I have another double macchiato, please? Thanks. Hi, Joshua. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you for sharing your incredible story. Well, thanks for the opportunity to tell it. I saw you having a macchiato or two at the event. How were they? Did they live up to your standards? How honest do you want me to be? Very. You know, they were a little more foamy than I would have liked. What you really want is microfoam, like really small air bubbles. What other foods are you a stickler for? Try to pick just one or two. Well, being a stickler is not tied to the object of stickleriness. Being a stickler is a state. So anything... For me, being a stickler is you have the proper form, and I'm very agnostic to whatever the proper form is. I don't have strong preferences in that way. But what I do have strong preferences or opinions about is that that form is as best expressed and as best executed as can be. So whether it's like a shrimp jello mold or, you know, gumbo or a croissant, croissant, pain au chocolat, I, I want it to be properly made. So the answer is I'm pretty much a stickler. Where, about everything. And where I get into trouble is I'm quite rigid in my thinking sometimes. And I often think I know much more than I do know. So, of course, being a stickler totally falls apart if you don't actually know what you're talking about. And I don't know what I'm talking about most of the time. Is being a stickler or being in a state of sticklerness essential to being a good writer? Being precise in your expression is. Your story starts in 2014 when you were the restaurant critic for the New York Observer. Why did you want to become a critic? Because I can't afford to eat out. <laughs> this is actually <laughs> true. I love restaurants. I love eating out. I can't afford that. And the other part of it that I, the part that I miss, I mean, I miss a lot of it because I still can't afford to eat out. And now I'm not a critic, so I don't. <laughs> But the part that I miss is I still don't think that restaurant criticism has been elevated to its proper place as alongside or a peer of literary criticism or musical criticism or art criticism. It's still bucketed as service. Is it good? Is it bad? And to me, it ties back to being a stickler. I find it enduringly frustrating that so much criticism is, get the burger. It's juicy. It's like, I don't care. What does a burger mean? What did Papa Frank think about your writing? Did he read any of your reviews? I don't think he read anything I wrote. Or at least he never mentioned it to me. I try to keep my family and my professional spheres quite separate. Sometimes because I write about my family and I don't want them to know. 
Did you ever wish you would read your writing? No. I write for the public and to some extent myself, but I have always been almost like very private about what's meaningful in my family and what's meaningful for myself internally. Speaking of family life, when you would visit your grandparents in Kokomo as a child, you know, this is before your caffeine phase, hopefully. Yes. No, I didn't start drinking macchiatos <laughs> until I was nine. No, just kidding. Go on. Yeah. Things move fast around there in yeah. Kokomo, huh? That's right. Well, when you would visit them, what would be some of the favorite things that you would do together? You know, as much as my grandfather quizzed me on trees and it was like that, we would also, if he saw a tree that he loved and he had trees around Kokomo that he loved, we would all get out of the car and hold hands around the tree. Like... That was what? just something I remember doing, maybe to measure the size of the trunk, but I think mostly just to do that. No, Papa Frank sounds like he's a secret hippie. I wonder if he hadn't been born and lived where he lived and under the circumstances he lived, if he wouldn't have been a freer spirit. Like, part of him was a free spirit and very artistic, like... He used to make these beautiful paper cuttings of snowflakes because he's, he's very mathematical. So right. he would do these intricate folding and then he had these beautiful, you know, those crane scissors. And he would send me all the time these like, I, I don't have any of them anymore, these beautiful snowflakes. And then my sister, who was working as a pediatric oncologist in in California, he made and laminated them snowflakes for everyone on her ward. You know, like the he was creative in a way, but that was so separate from a very intellectual, shut down kind of emotional affect, I guess. I don't know if that answers your question. So we would. We would hold hands around trees, feed the ducks in Highland Park, which is a park in Kokomo, go to this Jewish delicatessen in Indianapolis called Shapiro's, which was like still one of my favorite places in the world to get like huge pastrami on rye. So what was Papa Frank's order? What did he love? Pastrami. You touched on this for a moment, but I really want to know more. Like where did Papa Frank grow up? What, you know, was his young life? like and and how do you think that shaped him into the person that he became so he grew up in lancaster pennsylvania and his father ben was the only thing i know about him is that he was barrel chested i was like what the fuck does barrel chested yeah. mean what what does that mean large diaphragm like big guy got it i think he owned a cigar factory wow pennsylvania doesn't really strike me as a Cigar. Well, to be a Jew in Lancaster, I think, in the early 20th century, probably was quite hard for him. Lancaster is mostly a Pennsylvania Dutch. And he was really smart and went to Franklin and Marshall with his older brother. Then he ended up um, going to Columbia, studying with like a Nobel Prize uh, physicist, kind of got into, started working on the Manhattan Project. Um my grandma, Grandma Ellie, 
was walking by, was a secretary and walking by to get coffee and it was 1947 and they fell in love. Coffee? Yes, coffee. Was it 47? No, it, was, it must have been earlier. And so he taught physics and like electrical engineering. Then he came to Kokomo, Indiana and he worked at General Motors, which then became Delco and like went through all of these iterations. He was like super civically minded. Like he worked in the concert, like Kokomo concerts and he brought like music and was just really engaged. But I guess I hadn't thought about it before, but, and proudly Jewish too, but very kept his creativity to me, at least everything was very segmented. Everything was very like cubicled. He had his creativity. He had his work, which we never really heard about. He was a tinkerer, but he was so like, he had his anger. As a kid, it was just all very separate. I guess it wasn't coherent to me, if that makes sense. Sure. But looking back as an adult, you can now see these distinct parts of his personality and his life that maybe you didn't understand as you were a child and growing up. I think it was hard for him to... This is a Jewish podcast, right? Ish? Jewish? Joshua. It's called Schmaltzy. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't normally talk about this in like a, in a more secular setting, but I think that it probably was hard for him to be Jewish where he was and when he was. And I think he had a lot of feelings of both pride and a, and a wish to assimilate, which must have intersected with him being like the big boss at this like uh, engineering department in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. And there being such a small community of Jews at the time, you know, this kind of thing like refracts through generations. I think my dad grew up being pretty ashamed of being Jewish, which later in life kind of turned into like forcing me to be like more Jewish, but then also carrying on this idea that people will turn on you at any moment. You know, like there is a lot of shame, running away from shame, running away from running away from shame that kind of went on all subterranean, all, none of it talked about. So much of it expressed through Judaism. And so I, as a grandchild of this, I think really, I want nothing to do with that. Like, I don't want the shame. I don't want the running away from shame. Not my thing. The core of our work at Jewish Food Society is creating this archive of family recipes. And we also write a narrative essay about each person's family history. And what I see in the research that we do is somewhat what you talked about, which whether it's the, you know, earlier in the 20th century or even, you know, people that are of our parents' generation, they went in two ways. They either became more religious and really latched onto their Judaism or they really wanted to fully assimilate into American culture. Yeah, but I find, like, I admire my Papa Frank for, like, many things. And one of the things I admire him for is just from growing up, despite what I just said, growing up, I never felt like we went to the temple. He was part of the temple. He was also like fully enmeshed in Kokomo society. And I feel like he embodied this way of being civically minded in Goyish society, <laughs> as well as like 
fully present in this small Jewish community. And from my, I was a child, but I didn't see shame about it. You mentioned Hanukkah a little bit in your story. Did you celebrate other holidays with like Grandma Ellie and Papa Frank in Kokomo? It seems yeah. like that was a place like where you really felt comfortable. Yeah. I mean, Passover, they had a big house. So like the finding the Afikoman was always like took forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, the I'm sure like for many of your guests, the world that my grandparents came from especially my um like my grandma who uh was a judge in kokomo the first female judge in the county grandma ellie grandma ellie yeah what? wow what a power couple they were fucking they were dope my grandfather helped run her um her campaign and so i have a a comb i, I have like four things from them that i own okay tell one us of them, about them okay one is a comb it says reelect Judge Eleanor Stein because my grandfather was her campaign manager and made this comb. <laughs> but the other thing that I have, which is a most meaningful thing from him, is a rock about the size of a cell phone, maybe smooth. And he had drawn on it in a Sharpie a picture of a fox curled up and sleeping, like using the shape of the rock to be the fox. And it's so cute. And he died in 2014, and now the Sharpie has worn away, and it's just a rock. But I know that, like, on that rock, he had drawn this fox. And it's like, th th what I like so much about that is, yeah, there was that spark of creative joy. Not often seen, but it was there. Well, you conclude your story with the sentiment that you want to teach your sons about how to show up in an emotional way. Yes. What are you doing actively to help them become more vulnerable and show up and be emotional? When I was growing up, every time I cried, my dad would say, how many Wawa's? Like, if I got hurt, if I was sad, how many Wawa's? Like, very dismissive. Like, it will be the name of my memoir, How Many Wawas, the Joshua David Stein story. Um, and I realized that it was because he was himself uncomfortable with crying and uncomfortable with sadness. And that is something that I do think is a legacy that my grandfather passed on. My grandfather had a very stiff upper lip, was, was very show no weakness. My dad took that his emotional needs weren't met. We call it um, avoidantly attached. So when I was showing distress, he shut me off because it made him feel uncomfortable. When I, for a long time, I didn't examine my own conditioning and patterns. So when my kids were distressed or sad or angry, I would sh push them away because it made me feel so uncomfortable. So when you ask, what am I doing to make them more vulnerable? It's not, that's not exactly it, but what am I doing to make them more present and show up for themselves? It's, I'm trying to be less reactive to my own shit and to be present for them. So if they're crying, I'm reflecting back to them that I see that they're crying and, it's, and they're upset and that's okay. 
And if they're sad, that's okay. And if they're angry, feel that anger. You don't have to shut it down and put it somewhere. For me, I realized I had been taking this anger for so long and locking it up. And of course, it comes out. So it's almost like what I've been trying to show them is to not model for them. It's not something you can show them. It's something that you are and they see is not to run away from suffering, not run toward it, not run away from it. And by not running away from it, you also are open to joy. I think I'm going to take that with me. Good. Joshua, thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Just a quick reminder, we want to hear from you. Drop us a note at hi at jewishfoodsociety.org and tell us who you want to tell a schmaltzy story on the show. Or maybe you've got a great story to tell yourself. Keep us posted. Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Also, we're still a little new around here. Be sure to follow and rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show. Schmaltzy is produced and edited by Freetime Media. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Oh!